Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I love introducing you to people who are committed to working on their own development and to helping others become the best versions of themselves. That's also a key focus of my company, Grow Strong Leaders. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people connect with each other in the workplace. And you can find out more about us at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I have two special guests with me. I'm very excited. This rarely happens. So I'd like to welcome Silvana Caloni and Paul O'Donnell. Welcome both of you to my show. Hi, Meredith. And I'd love to um, recognize Angela Cusack, who is the one that introduced you both to me. And I love Angela, so I'm very grateful for her to have brought us together. And the reason we have both of them here today, both Savannah and Paul, is because they've co-authored a wonderful book that is called Humble Crumbles, Savoring the Crumbs of Wisdom from the Rise and Fall of Humble Pie. And in the book, they take on two different roles, which I found very interesting. Paul provides what you might call a raw account of his journey as an entrepreneur, starting up and closing down a premium pie business. And Silvana supplements his narrative with observations and suggestions based on two different areas of experience, one as an equity analyst and the other as a leadership coach. And one of the things that I appreciated so much in this book is they embrace a word that we often don't want to talk about, which is the word failure. So we're going to have an interesting conversation around that. Let me just tell you a little bit about their backgrounds before we get started. Silvana has an extensive career in the financial services sector, and she's now a leadership coach who works with clients internationally. And in her work, she helps entrepreneurs and executives become more self-aware, more effective, and more successful. Paul is an investment banker who held leadership roles in global financial institutions. He's also a serial entrepreneur, hence his business that he started. And he now serves as a business consultant advising other entrepreneurs and business owners. So, Paul, this story is going to be so interesting for my listeners. And I would love for you to tell us you know, the story behind the creation of your business. How did you decide to make the shift from financial services to owning a premium pie business? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's a logical leap, but it was a, it was very much, actually, it started a long time ago because I was, the banks I was working for, and I started my career in Sydney, in Australia, uh, I was lucky enough to start new businesses for them. So it was what, what we would call an, an entrepreneur. So basically they said, look, we, would, we think we would like to get into this business. Can you check it out? And if it's any good, can you set it up and get it going? And I did that 
for several businesses while I was living in Sydney. And then I got a opportunity to go to Hong Kong to do something similar, but it was to start a brand new business for them, again, for the bank, uh, which was, uh, it ended up being an asset management business based in Hong Kong, but also in Thailand and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And it extended beyond that into Asia. So by then, I was really starting to enjoy the buzz that came out of starting businesses. And I'd never done it just by myself, of course. You know, I, uh, the, one of the, the hardest things to do when you start a business is find the money to actually start the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my case, if you're working for a big corporation, you just make a phone call or you send an email and they send you a check. And you, you know, you've got to justify it, of course, but you end up with funding. So you don't have to really worry about the funding. What you've really got to worry about is how good the business is going to be. Will it help its KPIs and milestones that management want? And I got to the point when I moved to London subsequently again to run another business for, for the bank that, well, why don't I do this myself? You know, it's, it's, this is great. And uh, so I left. Um, left the bank. I started uh, several businesses, but they were all related to financial services. Mm. It was research businesses. There was some uh, publishing, whatever. They're, but they're all kind of an angle of financial services. <clears throat> By then, I've been doing financial services a long time. And of course, I'd lived in different parts of the world. And then the next thing that happened was I thought, well, why don't I do something that's not financial services? Have a guess. It was... Pies. Now, when you're, when you're getting into that entrepreneurial world, what you're trying to do is find an angle. What's the, what's the brilliant idea that you're going to make some money out of or create a business? And in the UK, they created pies two or 300 years ago. That was, it was in there. The Welsh miners actually started them. And uh, my observation was there hadn't been a lot of progress. They were horrible. Mm. And in Australia, on the other side, pies are a national food. So they're really, really good. And yeah. had this thing, I thought, great, why don't I introduce Australian-style pies into the UK? And that's how it happened. That's mm. basically how I got there at the beginning. Mm. Silvana, do you want to add to that story? I guess what I'd say is what Paul's pointing out is that entrepreneurs are always looking for some sort of gap in the market or they're looking to disrupt the market or they're looking to find, you know, there may already be an existing market, but what's a subsection of it that hasn't been fully taken advantage of or exploited? And I mean exploited, not in a negative sense. I mean it just in sure. there's an opportunity, let's take advantage of it. So I think what Paul did was he saw just how successful this particular business in, in, in Sydney was just by the, the number of people that were coming through to this shop and mm. that were buying these pies. So they're, they're savoury pies. So sometimes Americans think that we're talking about cherry pies. Or right, sweet right. That's an important distinction, yes, for American mm. audiences. The closest thing in America would be a chicken pot pie. Ah. It's not quite the same, but it's getting there. Okay. And, and so he saw just how popular they were. He tried them out himself. The thing I really liked about, you know, the conversations and the narrative that Paul uh, shared with me was he had the wherewithal to just go and find out who was the owner of this business and have a conversation with mm -hmm. them. You know, some of us are, are, you know, a little bit tentative to ask, whereas he 
very jovial, amicable, certainly wasn't threatening her in any way, and just went up and asked what was the success of these pies? Why were they so popular? Why were they attracting such great uh, customership that ranged from, you know, the surfers on the beach to business people? So there, there seemed to be the gem of an idea, and Paul saw that opportunity and transported it to the UK. Before we get into some of the details about the business, I'm curious, whose idea was it to write this book, to capture the description of the phases of the business and also the lessons learned? And um, so whose idea was it? And then also, why did you write it? Who's it for? And what were you really wanting to get across with it? I think um, probably me initially, but it was only, uh, excusing the pun, it was a half-baked idea. So it was a, I didn't, I thought I had a great story to tell, but I didn't know how to tell it. Mm. And uh, it's not, you know, writing is one thing. It wasn't the writing bit. It was a kind of, so what? You know, it, who would bother to read a story about a startup that didn't end up, end up working? And it wasn't until Silvana and I had a conversation, and perhaps Silvana can take the con- this sentence o- over now, that changed everything. Yeah, and I guess if I, I, I think my inspiration actually came from The Art of Possibility by Benjamin Zander and, and uh, Rosamond Stone Zander, because hmm. I, had, I had actually seen him uh, perform, I guess, or at least he did a keynote at one of the conferences I'd been to, and they had a, a, a two-lensed way of approaching their book, and I really liked that. And I thought, well, here was a great opportunity because we have a true story it's, mm-hmm. it's not fabricated. It's not a parable made right. you know, backwards to right. fit the, the ending. So it was a true story. Plus, I did have two lenses that many people may not have. One, I had been an equity analyst myself. Mm-hmm. And two, I was now a leadership coach and working with some entrepreneurs. So I thought I could supplement Paul's story and maybe draw out the lessons a little bit more prominently than maybe had it just been his story alone. Yeah, I I think it's very effective and very powerful. And I will just take a moment to say, I think any of my listeners who own a business or whether you just started it up or you have been in it for a while, there are some excellent insights. And part of the, to me, the strength of the book is the way it's structured. The content is also excellent. Just the way you chose to you know, each have a voice in the chapters, as opposed to many co-authors where they make it one unified voice. I think it's really effective that yours are separated out because you get those two unique perspectives. And one of the things I guess I want to talk about upfront is this whole idea of failure, uh, you know, because sometimes, and, and I know, Paul, you've, you've sensed this yourself, there are times that you think I've got to keep it going. You know, I, I, I can't, what will happen if I acknowledge this isn't working? It, it, when we have any kind of failure, whether it's the entire business or certain things that happen that feel like it's a failure because it didn't work the way we hoped it would. I would love for both of you to talk about your perspective. You know, how do you define failure and how do you, um, you know, view it so that it's really a positive experience and not 
demoralizing or, you know, devastating for someone. Sure, sure. So from my perspective, uh, failure and for that matter success depends on the metrics you're using. It's what are you measuring it against? Mm -hmm. So generally speaking with businesses, failures are considered to be a loss in terms of of the the profits and loss. So in this case, Mm -hmm. it's not sustainable. You can't keep the business going. I think, though, what really interested us around this notion of failure is that Paul and I mentor some students at several of the universities here in London in entrepreneurship classes, and they're really bright, and many of them have not encountered failure before because they're A-grade students, you know, they've done particularly well. And so some of them are very cautious. They, They keep themselves, you know, too too narrowly focused or they don't take the leaps they don't they're not bold because they have a fear of failure you know they they have these great reputations they don't want to damage you know mm-hmm. their parents have invested hundreds well, hundreds of thousands potentially but you know a lot of money in their education etc so we were really curious and interested in helping the students get a better sense of well failure is part of the process failure has a purpose and a value Plus, I think another aspect of it, when we talk about Silicon Valley, we often hear fail fast, fail often. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, clearly in, in the world of technology, that that is a, a motto, but it can be a little glib, you know. Mm-hmm. Failing can be really painful. You know, Paul went through a very tough time. So what we wanted to show is that the failure is an opportunity to learn, is an opportunity to pivot, is an opportunity to recalibrate or to tweak. And, and in fact, that's how businesses have multiple iterations. There are many businesses today that didn't start out as they ended up. Right. Multiple iterations, pivots, et cetera, along the way. So mm-hmm. we wanted just to, to help people shift that perspective on, on what failure is and how they might address it for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think, too, the um, failure and success are very personal and they're, they're, you, you are up to here in either one of them and, it's, uh, and you're probably just breathing with either one of them because it's enormous amount of energy required to be successful mm. and an enormous amount of energy to get you through failure, however you want to define that. Now, failure doesn't necessarily mean you lose money. It could mean that, mean that you didn't meet your goal or somebody else's imposed goal that you were supposed to get X or Y or Z. So you may, in fact, be making money, just not enough of it or in not territories that you thought you would expand to and so on. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I did take it personally. I thought I was letting my stakeholders down, uh, people who had invested in the business. They're not at that very early stage of a business. They're not investing in the business. They might think it's fun or whatever. What they're really doing is investing in me. Yeah. And and that's a a big burden. That's a lot of weight to carry, particularly when you've got to say to them at some point, listen, it's not working and the money you put in, there's no chance you're going to get any any back. Mm -hmm. Now, that also begs a lot of questions. How well did you communicate with them? Or is it just, did you just turn up one day and tell them? And- Fortunately, I'm you know, I'm good at communicating. I'm good with people, so I made an effort to keep them in the loop, let them know what was happening. This is what we're going to try, and so on. 
There are a number of things I didn't realise, when perhaps we can, if we have time, we can talk about them later, which is renegotiating the contract with yourself mm. and renegotiating the contract with whoever, with your stakeholders. Um, and and that, that is terribly, terribly important. I also realised after the event, and I wish I'd known it beforehand, is I, like most people, put way too much emphasis on uh, how other people, their opinions or, uh, in my mind, they're, they're, what I imagined their opinions of me would be because I didn't achieve what I had set out to achieve. Mm-hmm. And that was yet another complication and burden. And that's the reality. That's where the rubber hits the road. You know, that's really, when you're in it, you've got to try and, and just manage all of those emotions yeah. on top of managing the accounting, managing, we had 35 staff, managing um, our suppliers, our, our landlords, and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's failure, segueing it back to it, is a thing to be managed. It's not a thing to be avoided. If you avoid failure, you, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You're not taking enough risk. Yeah. You're not doing enough things to make it work. Yes. Those are all such good and important points because I think when we, a lot of times if it's a service business, you know, our consulting or coaching like you're doing, Silvana, and of course, Paul, you're doing consulting as well. When you are the product, <laughs> it can be even more challenging. In this case, you had a different product that you were selling, but it is difficult to separate yourself from whatever yeah. it is that's happening. And so I'm curious to know, just like, you know, there's stages of grieving. I'm curious, Paul, if you experience different stages of denial, anger, you know, did you go through some of those same phases as you came to the realization, this isn't going to work, I'm going to have to shut it down? Yeah, many years ago, I read an amazing book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross mm-hmm. on death and dying, mm-hmm. and it can be applied to business. It's uh, You do go through that. And at some point, and I don't remember the day, but at some point, you say, I'm going to push the button. It's finished. It's, we'll start unwinding it. And it was not as exhilarating as the day on day one when I pushed the button to start it. But you get to that point where you simply, you've tried everything and you made a point earlier, which is really important. You know, I have tried something else. Why stop there? Is there one more thing I could have done or could have thought about? And in all honesty, I don't think so. Maybe there was, but, but, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, that whole aspect of second guessing ourselves and our decisions. One of the key things that you emphasize that I thought was so important. And and Silvana, this is something that I think you really made an excellent point about this whole area of Mm self-awareness. You know, why is it so important for an entrepreneur to know and understand themselves before they jump into new business? Talk about that related to self-awareness. Sure, sure. So what I'd say is that entrepreneurs and, and many business people, even when they're not entrepreneurs, you know, have a really good understanding of or have done the analysis of 
all the external things, you know, what's the competitive environment, where are the risks coming, what's happening to the economy, what's happening to commodity growth, all all these things that are external. They don't spend much time on getting to know themselves, getting to understand what their drivers are, what their motivations are, what their fears are, you know, why are they even getting into this business? Is it simply because they've seen a gap in the market that they feel that they can exploit? Is it for a bigger purpose? You know, it might be a social entrepreneur. Is it because they're trying to prove their dad wrong? Is it, 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 it it's just some spike? You know, what what's driving that? And the reason that getting to understand ourselves better is so important is if we don't, we think our view of the world is universal. We think everybody else shares our assumptions. Everybody else has our drivers. Everybody else has our standards and practices. But the minute you start working with someone other than yourself, you're going to start to find some differences. There'll be different appreciations, different nuances. There'll be cultural differences. There might be gender differences. There'll be difference in values. There'll be difference in humour. All, all manner of differences which make a really rich tapestry of, of humanity, which is wonderful in one respect, but also creates challenges in others. So first get to know yourself. And start to explore, well, what are my blind spots? Where am I making those assumptions that I think, well, of course they well, of course they think that. Naturally they'll be doing that. When in fact it isn't, of course, that they will do it. If if they share your values, if they share your background, if they share your education, yes, maybe they will have similar views and, and ways of making sense. But if they have different backgrounds, they may have very different lived experiences and expectations. Mm-hmm. So given that it's easy to have blind spots and fall into traps, um, both of you could talk about this so you can decide who wants to address it first. The role of a mentor, you know, or, you know, in a, a group of advisors, people that you are running ideas by to do a reality check, because I think too often there's this over optimism about how it's going to work. And so, what are your suggestions? I think you have some excellent ones in the book around working with people like a mentor. After you, Giovanna? Well, I think it's critical because, again, in terms of looking at the world from multiple perspectives, if you don't have someone to bounce ideas off, you will just dig your heels in, right? Because you Mm-hmm. Be an entrepreneur. You have to be passionate. You know, you have to stand against the naysayers. You have to keep yourself going. There's resilience. There's all, you, you've got to be facing knocks all the way along. So you have a conviction that you want to make this thing happen. But that can make you very blind to what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So the, the value of a mentor or a group of advisors or positive naysayers and and what I mean is it's not just perhaps a member of your family who have a very different risk profile or you know they're they're scared for you or they just wouldn't do it themselves so so not someone close to you like that but someone who can step back and Mm -hmm. can actually say well hang on you've missed some feature of what's happening in the market or there's a change in legislation coming or or frankly, the margins that you've assumed in your model, they are a bit rich. Or, But, you mm-hmm. know, so they're naysayers, but from the perspective of testing the idea, not just trying to 
to cut you down or not because of their own fear. So mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely essential. Have a mentor or have a coach, have a group of advisors around you, and ideally people who do have different experiences so they're, so they're not your bubble. You know, they're, they're not replicating right. right. or no. Yeah, yeah, they're not because they love you. They'll agree with what you're saying <laughs> automatically. They don't want to hurt your feelings or feel like they're disappointing you. People who will tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, what's your perspective? I, I pick up on that point, actually, because uh, I did have a board of advisors and I did have or an advisory group. Uh, and I did have uh, in particular one mentor, but um I kind of bounced ideas off other people as well, but in principally I had this particular guy. And your point is absolutely right. The, uh, with all the best good good meaning in the world, if you ask somebody who's a friend to give a critical analysis, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to be as kind as they can. And you know, in the case I had a mentor who was probably one of the, most effective entrepreneurs ever that I've ever met. And um, he, he was just a, he was a great mate. He was a very good friend. And he, um, he was hopeless. <laughs> he, yeah. he kept on agreeing with me, you know, and what I needed was somebody to say, listen, Paul, wake up. What are you doing? Think about another way. Go and talk to somebody else uh, about whatever. So I, I ended up with people who not so much were like-minded, but people who were friends. Mm. So, and that was kind of natural because I went to them because I couldn't, at the outset, I couldn't pay them. So I gave them equity in the business, which is quite common. And then to have that conversation with a friend is pretty easy. To have that conversation with somebody you don't know is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So you're more inclined to go the friend route. And I would strongly advise don't do it. Yeah. I think that's excellent advice. And it reminds me also of your chapter where you talk about business plans and how often the entrepreneur doesn't consider the downsides, you know, and I can remember that myself, you know, you have on these rose colored glasses, you're passionate about this idea you're bringing to the world and you don't want to have to look at that negative stuff, you know, avoiding that. So you either don't create a really, you know, effective business plan or you don't create much of one at all. And so there's this tension that you talk about in the book that I think is very interesting. And I would love for you to explore that a little bit. Why is the business plan so important and why is it when you're creating and it may seem obvious but i think it's important to articulate what is it that a biz that thinking through the business plan investing the time to look at all the different angles how is that helpful for you in terms of ensuring the success of the business i think the 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 business plan i believe uh, serves two purposes one is to get it out of your head and get mm. it on paper. And that is a, a very big and important step. Mm-hmm. Because you may then be able to stay, sleep on it, if you like, but then you'll see it on a piece of paper and you might think, well, actually, that doesn't make sense. I'm not talking numbers at the moment. I'm just talking right. the plan. Mm-hmm. This is what I, I would like to do and how to do it. The numbers come down the track. The, the second part of it uh, is to then come up with all the the detail and there's a lot of detail mm-hmm. to, 
So, for instance, in we had a very small business, but we, oh, if counting up each of the individual items that contributed to that business, there were about a thousand, mm. which came from around about fifty suppliers. So, if you go to a restaurant and you're sitting down, somebody supplied the table and chairs, somebody supplied the knives and forks, somebody else supplied the pepper and salt. That's three. Then there's the food. Then there's the uniforms, and then there's like, like it was just endless. And when you're itemizing all of those into your business plan, you suddenly realize you're exposed here, you're not exposed there, because this particular item is going to um, fluctuate wildly in price or you have to import it from overseas, whatever. But you start to then formulate or take it out of your head and put it someplace else. And a piece of paper is a good place to put it. The reality check, which I think Silvana is better than I are talking about that because I did such a terrible job, is really be tough on yourself on the downside. But Silvana, would you like to pick that one up? Well, I guess to this point about blind spots or not being self-aware. So even though, Paul, you know, tick a box in terms of method, process, did it in a measured way, you know, he didn't jump in, didn't throw all the money right from the, the word go, so he was very measured. What he wasn't aware of, though, that he's also a salesman. I mean, he was an accountant, but he's also a salesman. Salesmen traditionally are, are upbeat people, right? They're, they're, they're happy. They're, they can see possibility. They want to make things happen. They want to serve their customers, et cetera. So Paul had what we call happy ears. So even when he did his three scenarios of positive, negative, and neutral, they were all still skewed to positive, and yeah. he couldn't see that, right, because he's, oh, to your point earlier, he has rose-tinted glasses. So that's why, again, you need the reality checks mm-hmm. from someone else who can look at it, can step back, look at it more objectively, is not attached to its success and can therefore make some impartial comments or can, you yeah. know, help you to see what you can't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're both bringing up such important points that I uh, I hope my listeners are really taking this in with any idea that you want to create. You know, if you're inside an organization and you really want to get support for an idea that you have, uh, doing the same kind of analysis is really important because it, yeah. it'll prepare you when you have people raising objections, just like in a sales situation. Uh, to be prepared and have thought it through, I think, is really valuable. And, and if I can add, too, so sometimes what we find with some of the entrepreneurs who are more the creatives, if you like, uh-huh. they they can feel or they, they will say, but but a business plan is is just too black and white. It's, it's all about numbers. But I'm a creative. You know, the thing I'm creating can't be encapsulated on a spreadsheet, et cetera. Now, there's... There's some truth to that, but but the problem is if you just think that you can go with your creative spark, then you're likely to miss something. And mm. it may not be your forte. Numbers and spreadsheets and calculations may not be your forte, but the assumptions that you make are important. And mm. if you're not good at the numbers, get someone to help you. But you need to articulate what are the assumptions that I'm making and someone else can do the the spreadsheet, as it were. But if you don't get the assumptions, that's where you run the risk of, again, missing out on something or having um, contradictory 
things happening. You just don't know because it's all just out there in this in this beautiful picture of this passionate thing that you want to bring to the world. Well, and to your point, thinking about if you haven't really thought it through and done that kind of analysis, then you're likely to get hit with unexpected things, which is the nature of the business, and don't know how to respond because you haven't thought it through in advance. You haven't prepared for these potential situations that could occur. Um, one of the things I was so excited about was the top, the uh, in slice three, and I'm forgetting now the name of that chapter, but this idea of being open to possibilities. And Paul, I loved your emphasis on asking big. And I I would really love for you to talk about that. And of course, Savannah, you can um, chime in with your perspective uh, emphasizing that. But sometimes we ask too small. I know I do. And I think that's why that chapter just popped at me. It was like, oh, wow, this is really important. So give examples of how you asked big. Savannah, you you mentioned early on how Paul took the initiative to go and talk to that shop owner in Sydney to get the details. That's one excellent example. Give some others, Paul, about how you decided to make these big asks. I think you, in my case, I guess, but I, I got very excited about this business, which was still a very hazy idea, really, at this point. But but I wanted, I uh, I thought it would work, and I wanted to figure out what were the components that I needed to understand to make it work. Because some of them I knew, you know, I, I, as, as Silvana mentioned, I've got accounting training, so I can do that. I can do spreadsheets. I understand finance. I didn't understand how you make a pie and how you do baking, and so I had to learn that. So, so I asked people, uh, I, uh, for instance, I, I can't remember how I found this guy, but he ended up introducing me, and this is a really important point, to a uh, flour mill in the UK, and we had to come up with the formula for the pastry, and it didn't exist in the UK. We had to import the flour from Canada, believe it or not. It doesn't, it simply, the wheat doesn't grow here, that type of wheat. Um, so engaging this guy and then using his knowledge started to educate me. But the most important thing was he introduced me to somebody else who then introduced me to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So you've only got to ask once, <laughs> the big ask, and then the other asks come. Yeah. But it's a confidence thing. And once you've asked the first time, you realise actually it's not that bad. And, and people quite like helping, you know, mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. Most people like to talk about what they're doing and they like to help if they can. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is being generous enough in a way to listen to what they're saying and take some advice. You may not act on it, but you're mm -hmm. taking some advice. So the asking thing... I wouldn't be reluctant to do that. I don't think you're not taking advantage of anybody, but it does require a bit of confidence. The second time you ask is much easier. The third is even easier again. <laughs> well, I know, Savannah, you talked about the, the emotions mm. aspect in there. So whatever you were going to say, please say it, but also talk about that emotional piece. Sure. So just to segue on Paul's asks, the 
The other thing too is you don't know who's in your network until you start to ask. And yeah. someone will open a door and someone else will open a door. And, you know, Paul, well, something seemed bleedingly obvious, right? He, he wanted to get into Harrods is a very famous department store here in London. And he was trying to get into, I think it was the purchasing department. And, and he asked someone who knew socially who, as it turned out, had a role at, at Harrods and who just said, well, ring X, Y, and Z, you know, follow through. And it's like, oh, well, I, I could have thought about that, but I didn't, whereas this person gave me the permission, as it were, or, or yeah. suggested the yeah. nudge, yeah. the nudge I needed, as it were, to, yeah. to make this call. And then, you know, getting uh, PR for uh, for the, the shops. Uh, he knew someone within, and someone just lived locally, and then he got into, you know, magazines like Country Living. So it's like who do you know and who knows someone else? And it's a couple of degrees of, of, of separation. Yeah. That's great. And especially these days with social media and yeah. uh, and LinkedIn making it so easy to see, you know, who are your first level connections. It, it's it's a, that's a resource that sometimes goes untapped. We think we have to go outside, you know, and, and we don't look within our own backyard yeah. as in the book. So talk about the emotions involved in this whole asking. Sure. So I guess one of the things that I would say I've noticed, certainly coming from a corporate perspective, is that there is an argument that you have to make rational decisions. Now, I agree with that. But in fact, a lot of the decisions that are made are actually from emotions. We buy things because we want them. We we love them. We're excited by them. We're curious about them. We want to have what someone else. So there are lots of emotions, lots of things going on in that actual decision to purchase. So just relying on assumptions that people are rational when they make their, their purchasing decisions doesn't really capture what's going on and it's yeah. and it's the emotions that again what, what we tend to say in, in my training is if you break down the word emotion to e and motion an emotion predisposes you to act in a particular way mm. if i'm angry i'm predisposed probably to punish if i'm joyful i'm predisposed to you know see much more possibility in the world if i'm resentful i'm i'm predisposed to sort of close in and, and think oh the world's against me so getting familiar with our emotions not stomping down on them but but at first acknowledging they exist there's nothing wrong with an emotion in its own right so and it, we have them we're human it, it comes with the territory so acknowledging the emotion validating it and then, sure, go to the rational, logical, but don't deny that emotions exist and we as humans. And, in fact, you know, entrepreneurs absolutely are driven by emotions because, again, they have to have that passion to keep going. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that's been so helpful for me that I've learned over recent years is if I'm having an emotion, it's important to stop and pause and look at, okay, what thought was I having that triggered that emotion because I'm thinking about the situation myself, this other person in a certain way. And so I think that that's a useful um, step for someone to take instead of just 
feeling so angry and why am I angry and how do I manage it is, okay, so what was I thinking right before I felt that anger to better understand what, what caused me to get there? So I think that's uh, an important piece. You know, there's so much in your book there. I'm just looking at the time it's flown by. I would love for each of you to share one or two other really important insights that you think would be valuable for my um, listeners in thinking through their own businesses or where they are in their career um, if or even thinking of starting a business. What are a couple of key things that you would both like to say to those folks? Sure. Paul, do you want to start? Yes, well, I think the um, an important one is you can't do it by yourself. Mm. you need a team around you mm-hmm. and you need to manage that team in the sense of bringing the best out of them. And uh, it's, it's just too difficult to do that. It's, 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 you need somebody, for instance, we had a, a, a production kitchen making these pies, so okay. we needed a head chef to, to manage the people there. I couldn't do it. Mm. And uh, I needed a general manager to manage the... The, the shops and so on. So you need accountants, you need whoever you need, but you need a team. If you try and do it yourself, I have a lot of conversations with um, you know, very early stage businesses where they're, it's, it's almost invariable. They don't want to give away any equity because it's their idea and they kind of resent it. You know, They want to bring in a co-founder, which is a big deal in the UK, uh, they want to bring in a co-founder, but they don't want to give them more than 10% equity. And the co-founder wants 50% because they're co, you know, like. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, I, I have, come on, I'm not going to go into it now, but the point is you they need to start thinking realistically mm-hmm. about are you building a business? And if you are, what, you know, what are you going to, how are you going to do it? You're not going to do it by yourself. And if you want somebody like a co-founder or other people on your team, can you work with them? Mm-hmm. But you've got to have them. Yeah. yeah. And I'd add to that. So the notion of how explicit are you being with the other people that you've brought on board, right? Mm-hmm. So often entrepreneurs, their co-founder will be a mate or it might be a spouse or you know, someone they went to university with or whatever. So, again, you're making assumptions that, oh, well, we we have similar expectations or similar backgrounds or we want similar things. But you haven't actually stopped to actually ask that. You mm-hmm. haven't worked out, you know, how are we, what are we going to do if we hit a wall? What are we going to do if we have a disagreement? What are we going to do if, you know, we've got some conflicting um, commitments, et cetera? So yeah. to sit down and explicitly discuss how are you going to work together? You know, what will you do? How do you exit? You know, maybe someone wants to exit. Um, so I guess whether it's your co-founder, whether it's your employees, whether it's your mentor, the notion of actually stopping and sitting and having a proper conversation mm. and really teasing out rather than just making that assumption that, oh, it'll be okay, or frankly, I, I, you know, I don't like tension or I don't like conflict, so I'll just brush it under the carpet. It's better to, to raise it, you know, the elephant in the room or whatever, yes. to raise it 
and address it than bury it and have it fester and then it'll come back to bite you. And your mentor can help you do that. Yeah. Oh, this is just pure gold because too often we are, I don't know if it's sometimes fear, not wanting to rock the apple cart when we're just getting started. You know, we want to get along and again, put those rose colored glasses on. But if we have the courage to address things up front and realize, can we really work together or not? Because these challenging conversations are going to reveal some things about our ability to work through or not work through those differences. It's sort of like when someone's considering getting married, you know, you need those conversations before you say I do. And similarly in a business. And I think this holds true just thinking about what you've both said here in our, you know, kind of summary remarks, this idea of recognizing I can't do this by myself. If I hope to really have a business and not just be a full-time employee of the business and have it run me, I need to look at who, who can I share this with where it will be productive. And it doesn't necessarily mean hiring full-time people, but having resources in the form of people that either are contract folks with you or advisors you pay, but, but a team like you mentioned, Paul, is so important to do more than just what you see in those early days if you want to make it sustainable and enjoyable over time. And I think that's a key thing that you mentioned throughout the book is this idea of it's a journey and you want it to be enjoyable and not frustrating and stressful and all negative. So I think that the solid advice that you've built in based on your experience, Paul, and based on your, you know, two lenses, as you mentioned, Silvana, that produces to me an amazingly useful guide for a business owner, no matter where they are in the process, there are nuggets in there that they're going to be able to pull from. So I want to thank you both for sharing with my audience today, so many important insights about the running of a business, the starting and running and closing down of a business. And please let my listeners know, where can they get a copy of Humble Crumbles and find out more about what you do? So the book is available on Amazon and a lot of other booksellers, uh, but most easily on Amazon, you can get it as a soft copy (laughs) or or an ebook. And uh, we, Paul and I actually, you mentioned before, we use the word slices rather than chapters. So we keep that uh, metaphor going of, of the baking and the cooking and ingredients and so on. And so the crumbs of wisdom are the, the key points that we take out of each slice. Mm-hmm. And what Paul and I do actually to keep the conversation going is on a, on a Tuesday on LinkedIn, what either of us will make we'll take one of those crumbs of wisdom and write a post about it. So if any of your readers are interested, you know, please join us on LinkedIn. Oh, great. Well, in the show notes page, we'll be putting the links to your various social media accounts. So I encourage my listeners to look there and connect with both of you uh, on LinkedIn and follow those, those notes. That's a great way to bring those points to life. And I also liked, the way you summarize the key points at the end of each slice. So yeah. that was very, very good too. Paul, any other things you'd like to add? 
No, I think that it's um, the book is, I'd emphasize again, I guess it's a real story. And I've read plenty of kind of self-help books and whatever where they've clearly been written backwards. You know, they've got some great ideas at the end, but it's a, it's not a real story to get to those ideas. And I think that where this book really does differ is it really, it's, it's legit. It really did happen. And there's a lot to learn from that. And I think your listeners who are on the entrepreneurial journey, they're going to have a book to write as well. And, and they should do that because it's going to be different to my experience, even if they're failing, successful or whatever. But they can share that information for the next person and so on. And, and if I could say one last thing. I mean, we purposely made it very digestible. I mean, it, it's yeah. a thin book. It's designed to be easily absorbed and it, we ask a lot of questions. So we ask the reader to contemplate his or her own situation. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, in that sense, it's self-help, but it's more about being a catalyst to their inquiry of who are they as the entrepreneur, what, what's important to them, what may they not know about themselves, where can they go to get some assistance, et cetera. But it's, it's not a, a lengthy tome. It's not a, a dry textbook. You know, we like to have a bit of humour. You know, we've got the Aussie thing going on, so we, we've got yeah. a little bit of humour going on. So. You do. It's, it's really great. And I want to thank you both and, again, recommend your book because it is all the things you just mentioned. And I just appreciate the two of you so much, what, what you have thought through and carefully put together with such thought and care really to help people in their own journey by sharing your own by being vulnerable open mm-hmm. and and very practical so thank you both for being with me today well thank, thank you, you for the opportunity Meredith. we really appreciate you yeah, as well. i really enjoyed it thanks for tuning into my podcast now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books connect with your team and peer coaching made simple While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.